What's going on everyone? Welcome to episode 83 of Health Unchained. Hope you're all feeling hopeful as the temperature warms up and COVID-19 vaccines are distributed worldwide. The crypto markets are in flux as China announces yet another ban on mining. Elon Musk pleads with the crypto community to use renewable energy for mining. Nations are racing to roll out their own digital currency that they can control. As human beings, we're experiencing an inflection point where technology is transforming our society as we know it. At the heart of that transformation in healthcare and other industries is AI and blockchain technology. On this episode, our guest, Ted Tanner Jr., and I talk about some of the philosophical issues we need to consider when developing the new Web3 world. We discuss trust in decentralized autonomous society, his experiences building tech and healthcare companies, and Ted's love for music. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope you all enjoy it. Disclaimer, remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. This introduction was generated using overdub artificial intelligence. Let me know what you think. Did it sound like me? Now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Ted Tanner Jr., Chief Technology Officer of Watson Health. Ted was previously the CTO of PocketDoc, a major healthcare company which leveraged APIs and the DocChain blockchain platform. PocketDoc was acquired by Change Healthcare in 2018. In addition to leading multiple other successful startups, he's worked at Apple and Microsoft. Ted has written many technical articles and holds several patents in semantics, machine learning, and signal processing. Ted, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. It's, it's been a long time coming, so thank you for joining me here. Ray, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And, uh, and you're right. It has been probably, gosh, I guess about four or five years we've been planning this. So I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. So just for like the audience's sake, would you mind just giving like a brief background about yourself, how you got into healthcare and technology? Okay. Yeah. I got into tech through a very circuitous route, was supposed to play sports at a pretty good level and I ended up breaking my arm. And, and so I had to switch gears during my senior year of high school and I got interested in audio and I originally became a, I was totally fascinated with the audio and recording process. And I went and became a, a professional recording engineer and toured with a lot of bands and so forth and worked in studios. And then I was still very interested in the entire technology underlying, like what an equalizer was, what an amplifier was like, and that, that led me to going to graduate school at a University of Miami in psychoacoustics, perceptual media, and signal processing, and worked for, if you have any uh, listeners out there, a company called Digidesign, which uh, revolutionized the whole aspect of uh, digital audio recording. 
And basically, that was my entree into APIs in 1992. And then from there, I left. And I, if you're familiar with Jaron Lanier, he coined the term virtual reality. I, I worked at his a portion of his uh, lab that was doing three-dimensional, fully immersive audio. So in 1993, I was already introduced to full stereo optics, full VR, full immersive head trackers, body wow. trackers. And, and so I, I was very, I was very pro virtual synthetic uh, environments due to the way that I learned about perceptual media. So you go from per perceptual to parameterization, and that still has tracked throughout my career. And then just more, better, faster. That was the heyday of signal processing and the Valley became a CTO of a publicly traded corporation that was doing consumer and professional electronics and a chip fab. I, and I also worked at one of the largest chip manufacturers, national semiconductor doing VLSI programming and so forth. And I then left there. And when Steve came back to Cupertino, I was immersed in the CPU software department and was part of the team that delivered OS 10 audio and graphics. And left there, some listeners are familiar with Mongo Music. We, we did an amazing perceptual model of a human cognition of music, pre-music genome project, pre-Pandor, pre-Shazam. And uh, Microsoft bought it six months later. And uh, that was a good win. And I uh, stayed at Microsoft for a long time working in operating systems, uh, research, a technical public policy, et cetera, and met my future co-founder at uh, two companies, uh, Lisa Mackey, who's a complete rock star. And uh, we left Microsoft with uh, good graces and founded a machine learning and NLP as a service company on AWS in 2007. And so think about the time frame. We're already doing machine learning as a service and NLP on AWS. And we sold that to the largest benefits enrollment company because we had several offers, but I said, I think maybe this digital health thing might be something in the future. And Benefit Focus presented itself as an acquisition, as an acquirer, went there, learned a ton about EDI and the enrollment process. And we looked at all the data, Lisa and I did, and you said, you know, what the world needs is a development platform like health. You can hide all the sausage making and just write JavaScript and build applications or whatever language you want, Python, Haskell or whatever, and the consumerization of data. And so in the healthcare space, so that's how PocketDoc was born. And we wanted to bring, essentially bring a Stripe or Twilio model to healthcare completely a la carte self-serve. We built APIs for provider directories. We had 4.6 million providers with licensure data, fully certified. We had the best in breed medical clearinghouse. We integrated 55 EMRs under one rest endpoint. We had a pharmacy benefit management API. And uh, then we took all of that and we were connect. We were also connected to 97% of the insurers in the United States as well. We took all of that and I read Satoshi's paper in 2009. I said, the future is going to be open source distributed completely. And I said, but it's not time yet. My, I go by the mantra of uh, the three T's, tech, talent, and timing. And so the timing wasn't right. We took the entire thing, the platform, and we did the first live eligibility check. No, notice I said live eligibility check because I believe execution is everything in software. No slideware, no jazz hands. 
And we did the first live eligibility check at Health 2.0 in 2016, and then just evolved it from there. And then, so that's a very long history. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, all good. That was definitely a robust kind of background. Uh, Yeah. Really quick, when you say live eligibility, is that, you mean real-time eligibility checking or... Okay. Yeah, we yeah, we because we already had we had we had third party applications already built. We were already connected to the insurers. We could then build the smart contracts on whatever blockchain tech we wanted and transact with that ecosystem. Interesting. So, while you were at PocketDoc and we're starting it getting ready for maybe launching it into the marketplace, were you yep. thinking about who would be the buyer of this technology? And did you anticipate change a company like Change Healthcare actually purchasing it? It's interesting. One of I get a lot of questions about like when you're building a company. I had I've had the complete humble narrative of going public with startups, exiting with two startups I founded, advising startups. And it's just it's an astounding process. I think software in general is an amazing invention that hopefully we'll get to some of the ideology around that. But I always tell people, dream up when you're starting the company, dream up your exit press release. Write down what you want that future state to be. Will will it into being? It's very interesting. If you look at any of the companies that ever existed, they always turn into something else. Google, Facebook's really different. Microsoft's different. The threat, the narrative is there, but the companies evolve and change and, and people want to hold on to that additional, that, that initial idea. And I tell them that it's probably going to change. One thing that doesn't change is that is the great people always look for great people. But to answer your question, I didn't foresee the largest health IT company purchasing us. You know, I, I thought it was going to be one of the hyperscalers personally. Uh, so you thought like it would maintain its maintain pocket doc, just keep growing that as a company and acquiring uh, new yeah. customers and and then clients. and then for me personally, I was hoping to take it from zero. If you read Peter Thiel's zero to one, I was hoping to take it from zero to publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. But I, what I meant by hyperscalers is I was if we were to sell, it would have been to Amazon, Google, or Microsoft. Uh, got it. Okay. And so if you think about the timing. If, if we could time shift that, and, and it all comes down to how much money you raise, how much money you make. By the way, just for the folks listening out there, we only had 65 people in the company. When was this um, sold? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we, we did all that with about 60 people, to be honest. So, and that, that's, yeah, it's quality over quantity. You don't need, you don't need a bunch of people to, and that, that was the whole mantra. That's the whole scalability of software, right? Absolutely. And you were talking about timing and like list, reading the Bitcoin white paper for the first time. Yeah. And how did you know that distributed was going to be the way of the future? And what decisions did you start making because of that? Yeah, that's a great question. Having a feel for market changes and precognating the future of where the market's going is an interesting 
trait. Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it appears to be preordained. I really don't know. I, I literally was reading it and I was like, holy hell, this is where everything is going. I just had, it's like when you hear a great piece of music, it speaks to you somehow. And I remember thinking, okay, this, the whole aspect of uh, decentralization, distributed computing, incentive models, and consensus models are going to be the future that we're going to be striving towards. Yeah. And for me, I, I always thought, wow, this is so huge. It can really take over the entire financial industry. Mm -hmm. Anything that has value can be potentially on here. And the way that the double spending problem was explained in the white paper as well, like introduced that whole concept to me, which I wasn't really aware of. So yeah, that was... Everyone has their story about how they first hear about Satoshi's paper. I was actually sitting in my drive. I was standing outside of my driveway, just walking around reading it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Well, <laughs> you know, print it like, out too, not on your phone. Yeah, totally. I was like making notes. I was fervently writing and I, it's exciting. And if you, if, for everybody who's read it, it could be he, she, or they. We, we really don't know. That's the beauty of it. Exactly. So let's get into just global blockchain ad you know, adoption and awareness, specifically in the sure. healthcare space. Sure. And how do you think that's developing here in the United States and also globally? Yeah, great, great question, Ray. I think, and here's where we get into some of the more ideological, politico, philosophical issues to do with distributed ledger in general. Because if you remember reading the Satoshi paper, the word blockchain wasn't even in the narrative. And so whatever we call this stuff, and I look at it like if you have an incentive model with some type of consensus model with some type of distributed storage, whatever that is to become, that's what this thing is. So right now, let's just call it blockchain. And as I always say, if you use, if you, if you use blockchain, AI, and quantum in the same sentence, unicorns will start vomiting $100 bills somewhere. So globally, I think it's a much easier, because of the regulatory environments, I think it's a much easier jump because you have the rest of the world, and let's be very transparent, is you have underserved, hell, nation states. And so it's a much easier, it's just a long time ago, all of a sudden, India went from having no phone usage to being the most mobile phone usage. They just airdrop phones. So the, the sunk cost infrastructure in the United States is what we have to overcome. And I don't personally agree as a CTO, I don't agree using sunk costs as a reason not to make something better. Especially with when, when it comes to something like healthcare, wellness delivery. So why aren't we seeing this complete sea change? Philosophically, I call it computing the human condition. Getting people to agree consensus is hard enough. How do we computationally get that to happen? Uh, the computational governance, we, it, it, it's been proven. We can have SLAs and BAAs and all these types of agreements that computationally can be weighted and voted and consented upon via groups of people, yet it just doesn't happen that way because the incentives are so misaligned. However, in other areas of the world, you have a much less inertia to jump over. You see where I'm going with this? So this is where it starts breaking down politico, ideological, human condition issues. And philosophically, 
I believe that one of the main things is in the United States, we have 40 years of infrastructure that appears to work. It appears to work. And it's hard to just get rid of that overnight. We're stuck with it and we've paid for it already. So like you're mentioning in India and probably uh, places in China and also Africa, they don't have that old infrastructure. So they can leapfrog us is what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and they very well could, but once again, it comes down to deployment of services. I think one thing that has possibly created a sea change is the fracturing of the system with the pandemic. Yeah. That's right. It exposed a huge gap in our infrastructure, really. Exactly. And you're saying, you're seeing tons. I'm on the board of directors for uh, Linux Foundation Public Health uh, Organization, and we're seeing tons of companies, consent management, contact tracing, exposure notification, those types of technologies are totally be de- being deployed in the open source. And I think that that's one thing that is currently happening in technology. I wrote a, on, if you go to tedtanner.org, I wrote a blog on the famous book, The Cathedral and the Bazaar. I think we are now entering the age of open source and transparency. Very interesting. You mentioned COVID. One thing that I saw today in the news is that HIMSS and the health conferences, these are major healthcare conferences, are mm-hmm. going to require attendees and exhibitors to actually be fully vaccinated. So I'm sure they're going to have to find a way to use technology to verify that a person who says they're vaccinated truly is. And I'm sure some of these technologies you're going to be talking about might be involved. Yeah. So once again, we're going to, we're going to, and, and I historically called it the asset under consideration, i.e. a crypto asset. So how do you move from a physical asset to a crypto asset or an asset under consideration? And if you move up, if you move to a crypto asset that has hashing elliptic curve cryptography and is on some type of contiguous chain, this verified of the provenance of where that actually originated from. And you know exactly who originated that from. And so it's a very canonical situation. Now, you're probably sitting there going, wow, sounds great. Tell me more. The issue is the transparency issue. In terms of like privacy of the individual? Well, or- not necessarily. It's the operational acuity. When we were running Pocket Doc at scale, we were actually showing how companies that thought they were doing a, a service, we compared it to companies who were doing other types of transactions. And the operational accuracy showed that they weren't that type of company. Uh, interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I politically answered the question just then. <laughs> It um, shows it shows the double spend ledger problem manifests itself in several ways and shines a light on how the actual company is operating. If that makes sense. I got it. Yeah. And then that's uh, a risk for some of those companies who are operating the way they shouldn't be. Exactly. Um, and yeah. And so healthcare is an interesting thing because it will always involve the human by definition. And I call it augmented intelligence. I'm still working. I'm still looking for plain old intelligence myself. So I think the caregivers are rock stars, physicians, assistants, pharmacy people, doctors are all rock stars. And we should augment their intelligence because back to your thing with the, the vaccine, 
those frontline people have something that we can't compute yet, and that's empathy. Yeah. How do you? And we're not even compute? close. We're not even close. <laughs> but people are trying, so that's another. Yeah, we're we're, we're getting after it. Yep. That's so interesting. Yeah, and I agree. I think healthcare workers are put in this position where they have to use the technology because of policy or regulation, uh, which is okay, but then it takes them away from the actual patient. And this is a conversation we've all kind of seen that where you go visit a doctor, they're looking at the computer for most of the time and not really giving you enough or as much attention as you'd expect. Although I would say in the last few years, it has gotten better. I think telehealth has contributed to that, I guess, more empathy with providers. Mm-hmm. Potentially, if, if you're having like a recurring visit with the same provider, otherwise it's like a random doctor for five minutes and then you move on. Have you ever been to a doctor and they laid their hands on you and knew what was wrong with you? A long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Like. See, every so dig on this. Everybody has that one experience. We went, wow, how did you know? And like that, that's something I hope from an AI perspective that we we start moving in the area of scaling the hippo i call it scaling the hippocratic oath Hmm. and i want to build and i want to personally build things for the healthcare industry that scale the practitioners and frontline people and for any developers out there tech people whenever those people are talking please be quiet as i say i deal in code not blood they deal in people let them do what they do best and listen to them and show them empathy. Couldn't agree more. And talking about AI now, I have a question regarding AI, machine learning, Mm -hmm. even federated learning. Do you think these technologies are going to be in the future dependent on a secure blockchain? Are we able to even do AI in the future securely without a blockchain? How you deliver the concept of trust. I call it delivering trust. I think it manifests itself in some type of hashed sign transaction. You know, the, the area of homeomorphic encryption, basically doing analytics on encrypted data started 15, 20 years ago. That's the, interesting, that's the interesting thing about the blockchain or distributed ledger in general over the years. I, I want to get my head around blockchain. Okay, so you do you understand finite element? finite fields with elliptic curve cryptography. Do you understand what SHA-256 is? Do you understand how OAuth works? Do you understand the concept of consensus models, wraps or Paxos? I could go down the entire list. You can't just deliver a two sentence thing to get your head around it. What most people want to get their head around is if they're going to be disintermediated or not. Okay. Now, if you think about the text that I just technologies that I just discussed, all of those consensus models have been around since the 70s. Hashing has been around since the early 60s on mainframes for identity management. Incentive models with game theory and mechanism design has been around since the 40s. It it these are well-worn, well-trod areas. But back to your question about delivering AI. I think if we are to do it correctly in the proper fashion, and especially for model fusion and federated learning, we must have some hashed elect- electronically signed distributed model for it to properly operate. And that brings up a whole host of issues like I mentioned with the homeomorphic encryption and so forth. 
Are you concerned about the impact of quantum computing on the world's data security systems, especially like blockchains? Yeah, I have the honor of recently being anointed a, a IBM quantum ambassador, which was just a complete blast. Oh, it was so humbling. Yeah, it was, gosh, there's just so many smart people in this world. It's really cool when you feel stupid. You know, <laughs> and you step into that world and you feel stupid really quick. And, and that gets into philo philosophically how I view software is like always push yourself. Like I said, I got this question about five years ago. If we're worried about a blockchain being busted at the of quantum usage, the stuff that we have to worry about on the larger order variables is so much larger and it's coming and we have to deal with it because there's tons of companies doing quantum startups now and they're really working on some really hard problems. But as far as like breaking blockchain, it's gonna break a bunch of other stuff philosophically on how we view complete business models before it breaks blockchain. You see where I'm going? This is like a first order principles engineering problem. It's like, okay, before we get to blockchain, what's the other things that's gonna circumvent? And you're talking about quantum computing potentially absolutely hack hacking into like just centralized databases and things like that more simply or into your account yeah, or philosophically changing the way we view computing tell me more about that i want to know what you mean if, if you think in terms of the way that like a regular programming language returns numbers or functions of functions mm -hmm. quantum computing returns basically probabilities of those functions. So it's a probability distribution and you can keep due, due to the way the, the lattice spins work, you just keep doing histograms of spins basically over and over, you know, keep flipping it, it. The analogy that we use is you spin an apple and flip a coin at the same time and whatever number it lands on. And so if you really think about it, returning probability distributions of decisions over and over is much like life. There's no so certainty I, about it. It's all just almost a hundred percent, maybe. Well, for those that, yeah. for those that know me out there, I say nothing is random. So this is where we get into a philosophical discussion of what it is actually doing. But I think fundamentally that we get into an issue of what is it that we actually want to achieve, mm. right? What is it that we actually want to achieve? And it's, it, I believe the, to you, the Schrodinger analogy, the cat's out the bag right now. It's not even the box. That, it's out there. Or is it not? Who knows? We, or is we, it not? Who knows? <laughs> I hear it's an interesting challenge. And I think all technologists are watching this space, the quantum space very closely. I think. And, we, and we have to, I'm sure we'll get into this in some of the questions, but now we're getting to, we're getting to, into an area of ethical responsibility. Every piece of code that we write going forward from this time on should be viewed appropriately because it That's, means something. Philosophically, I agree with you. And one thing I would say is that's tough just looking at the world today and all the different players and stakeholders and interests out there. Maybe I'm a little pessimistic or right. cynical you're, about you're not, the world. Yeah, but. yeah, you're not being cynical. That's why I, I have a little pet project I do on my website called uh, Project Noamina from the Kantian to know a thing unto itself. And I'm, I'm envisioning a world where we compute the human condition we compute empathy, we compute in framework. So stoicism, Platoism, all the isms and what that means from an incentive standpoint. Now, should or shouldn't 
I say everybody should have access to this at some level. Now, what they fundamentally do with it, do we try to regulate that? I believe that technology should seek its own water level because by the time you regulate it, it's already changed. And fundamentally, this brings up the whole issue of, I, I believe software is the greatest creation of all because you can have, you can create software for one-to-one, one-to-many-to-one, many-to-many. You can charge for it. You can give it away for free. You can delete it. It's completely, it's, it's like ideas incarnate, but really what is it? It's the, it's, it's, we're in all the top market cap companies are information theoretic companies. So what does that tell you? We're the cats out the bag. <laughs> yeah. Actually, speaking of some of those like hyperscalers that you mentioned, mm -hmm. like the Facebook, Amazons, uh, Google's of the world, do you think they are prepared for this Web3 world where an individual can go onto the web using a decentralized identity, do what they need to do, buy what they need to buy, but I guess very personalized to them? I guess that's like Web 2.0. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. How would you comment yeah. on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if I replay the question back in, in a future state where you have a, a decentralized autonomous society, how are they going to deal? How are they going to deal with that? I, I, I work for a company that, that I believe delivers is it, still a very trusted company. We attempt to compute trust. And I think we're seeing that play itself out with companies like Apple and other companies right now. And it gets into the whole trustless, trusted, private versus public blockchain discussion. All of these companies have some type of distributed protocol running. So how they deploy that and what they're going to do with it, I think all of them need to address ethically what's, and, and I'm saying this about any company that deploys technology, ethically, what do you think is gonna happen Ethically, what are you doing with that data? Ethically, how are you going to create value for the consumer and your shareholders? So it is a very difficult multivariate problem. But then again, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Yeah, that's fair. Interesting. Do you see them becoming more decentralized over time? Like the companies would start to find ways to... Yeah, you two of my alma maters, Apple and Microsoft, they already have a, Microsoft has the computing ecosystem that's already decentralized. And Apple, as far as I'm concerned, and from what I've seen, Apple Pay is pretty decent. <laughs> it, it appears to be distributed. Is that decentralized? Mm, I'm not sure, but it sure is distributed. Okay. You see the difference? So I see the companies addressing those issues and Google has their own blockchain protocol protobuf. If you look at protobuf, that's underlying several blockchain systems. So they make the technology that other tech that the blockchain is based on. So I'm just highlighting like the block the, the Lego blocks exist, but how you, once again, how you compute that incentive model is going to be referential to each company. Got it. I, I'm just learning about Protobuf now. I didn't hear about this before. So thanks for sharing that. Of course. Free service, man. Awesome. But let's talk about your main job right now. IBM Watson. What excites you most about? People. Health? Man, the people are just, I, I, the, the people are so rad. 
Like I get to work, I get to work with coding doctors. I get to work with some of the best healthcare life science, drug repurposing people and people that know molecules. And I, I could just go on and on it. I really like jaw dropping. If you go on my Twitter account at TCTJR, you'll see the icon with my head blown apart. And I put that up there when I started IBM because it's just crazy. I can't. And, and to me, the talent's everything. You can take an idea, you can take a pencil and with the right talent, turn it into a Mount Blanc pen. And I believe, I don't believe, I know for a fact that we have probably some the best subject matter experts in healthcare at IBM Watson Health, full stop. And that's what excites me. That's awesome. And just one thing for the audience, I'm going to share uh, Ted's website and Twitter in the show notes so you can easily find that. Oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> totally humbled. No problem. And on that same vein, as a technical executive, or at least I play one on TV once in a while, my goal is to amplify others. And I, my, like, literally, what is it you want? What do you want to go do? What is it your passion? There is nothing to me more cool, like finding your passion and dwelling on it and coding in general is just so un unbelievably cool. You know, I mean, it's just, I live it. That's who I am. Like I'm always walking around with a math book or a text or something. And like, how's that work? Why does it work? It's ad infinitum. You dig what I'm saying? I do. And I'm sure there's like hundreds or even at least thousands of uh, developers or listeners right now that are like getting super excited as you speak oh, and, and probably yeah. like trying to find you on the socials. So <laughs> yeah, go hack something and blow it apart, man. And if you're not, and if you're not breaking something, you're not coding hard enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So in addition to the people, are there any like specific like projects right now that's happening that you think is just super interesting, whether it's on the Linux for health platform? Oh, okay. Or... You, you check that scene out. Okay. No, I think if you look at the narrative and Watson health in general, we'll, we're being great stewards of the open source health movement. And we have several projects. We do own this company, this operating system company called Red Hat. Mm -hmm. It kind of does something in the open source, you dig? And in healthcare, they have a project called IDAS. We got two projects in Watson Health called Alviary and Linux for Health. And it's my goal. I, I want to create, it's basically this continuation of PD, it's PD2O. It's Literally what I wanted to do with Pocket Doc is build all that stuff and open source it. The whole concept of hashtag health IT goes away, right? If you think about what happened, I call it a PayPal event. If you think about what happened to PayPal and everybody remembers the first time it did a transaction in PayPal, it's like, oh hell, that showed up in my bank. And you got to philosophically, you got to wonder if, if the PayPal mafia is just making Bitcoin and there's Satoshi. I could get an all kind of weird or somebody from github a disgruntled person because you know github's a merkle tree and that's a it's a graph merkle tree you dig but what i want to see is i want to see as much open source health healthcare software put out there but what i want to do is make a health operating system a 22 year old female with purple hair and a nose ring that knows JavaScript can make the greatest company imaginable and doesn't have to know about HL7 or FHIR or IDG, CPT, me, whatever. And so that's where it's at for me now. And I think bringing, and as far as what I'm excited about, the area of precision medicine, 
Mm. And the only way to get to a true precision medicine construct, which to me, by definition, is any nomics, any type of nomics at all. And then you have outcomes data and then molecular drug derivatives. And then the consumer, I don't like using the word patient, the consumer sits in the middle. So you can do preemptive delivery based on those signatures. And that's what I'm most excited about. Coupled with the fact that we're building the Health OS, and I urge uh, the community to, if I can say one thing, give, give it a thumbs up and uh, do some pull requests against it, bang on it, and let's make it happen because it's an open source environment. Let's stick on this topic for a minute about open yeah. source because there are tons of healthcare startups that maybe started in the last 10, 20 years or so that maybe are still closed source. So their code base is closed. That's really their patents. That's like what they're mm -hmm. making their money on. And mm -hmm. with if they gave that away in open source that anyone can basically copy what they're doing. How do you, I don't want to say convince, but maybe how do you persuade or enlighten those companies that are still thinking about this in a more traditional sense? closed source code. This is an interesting construct because we're seeing, I think NVIDIA definitely is going to change the way we think about computing with, especially with the purchase of ARM. And this goes to the distributed decentralized nature of devices and things that we hold in our hand in, in every, in every iPhone or I thingy is some type of ARM core. And when you think in terms of what your developers do. And I strive as a CTO to be a developer first CTO. You want to have your technical team having deep discussions with the coders because they're going to build the world that you can see where I'm going with this. And most of the time, if you ask coders nowadays, have they contributed to an open source project or use open source, they will invariably say yes. So from a construct and ideological standpoint, the scalability goes with the open source movement. Now, back to the commentary about getting your head around blockchain. It's a business model issue. It's a disintermediation business inter, you know, model issue. You have to think deeply about, and especially was in the healthcare world, what is the value-based care model of the future? Does a healthcare to me, and I've said this for probably over a decade now, we need, when it comes to software and healthcare, we need new metrics. Time on page, stickiness, all those attributes that reflect web pages or application, number of downloads are useless. What is the outcome? What is the value? What is the delivery mechanic to both the provider and the consumer you have here? And so fundamentally, I think we need to come up with a brand new set of analytics for software for successful healthcare. You caught what I said just then. And I think that in and of itself, because infrastructure itself is to me, no value now, because you can go, you can go to, you know, anybody worth their worth, they can grab an elk stack, spark, react, and choose MongoDB and you got a stack and it's all open source. You can, in a week, you could have something stood up and running if you know what your business model is. 
which reverts back to the incentive model. See? Yeah. And I think finding that specific market or business model is really tough now because it's such a moving target and it's ever changing. And and, and Ray, all, all of the hyperscalers are open sourcing software now. Now, whether or not your definition of, and people confuse open source and free. You can put something out there for free, but somebody I always, how about this for an idea? I wish GitHub would make a token, a crypto model where the number of pull requests, like the, the Brave uh, browser, the attention, the dollar BAT token, the attention token. Bad, bad coin, well, yeah. Yeah, why can't we have, and I'm not endorsing that at all for the, the listeners. I'm just saying philosophically, why can't we have a developer token where, you know, given the number of pull requests that you do, and the type of code you enter, why can't you get get a little crypto? So isn't that what Gitcoin is doing? Yeah, and that's, that's, I was throwing you a softball there. <laughs> yeah. Much appreciated. But I think here, think about the business model. I think hopefully in the future, you each consumer can you can have a Raycoin or a Tedcoin. You you provide your incentive model on whatever type of data you want to provide. Let's say the payer or provider, and it's a consent. You. The whole aspect of consent, somebody is accessing your data. How are they accessing it? Why are they accessing it? When are they accessing it? And we can monetize ourselves. We can monetize our reputation. I even see, I see a future where you monetize your passion. The whole concept of passion, right? A few little, look at NFTs, a little snip, couple snippets of a tweet sells for a zillion bucks now. And I think we that needs to somehow come into healthcare and usher in new business models. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, although those concepts right now are totally foreign to most people. And even like for us, it's not like concrete either. It's oh, a no. and I'm not saying discussion. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not saying we jump, you know, I'm not but let's say let's say for the concept of an eligibility check. Am I eligible? I don't know. My my daughter's throat's hurting. I gotta see if I'm eligible. What if that was a simple tokenized model that said you're eligible until a life event changed. Then you wouldn't ever have to, then you wouldn't have to check it again. Think how much time that would save everybody. Something that simple. I'm not talking about NFTs or, or a DeFi or anything like that. I'm talking about set a flag in the protocol. Yeah, I know it's. On May 20th, 2021, the Chopper Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving health and well-being, announced the availability of their new, free, never-alone mobile application, which offers individuals the ability to connect 24-7 with curated volunteers, counselors, mental health experts, local organizations, and hospitals based on their location. The app is a collaboration with CG Creative Studios and leverages the Hedera network which is a decentralized ledger technology that uses acyclic graphs to create an asynchronous Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus algorithm. The Hashgraph technology is currently patented and the only authorized ledger is Hedera Hashgraph. The native cryptocurrency of the Hedera Hashgraph system is HBAR. The Never Alone app was demonstrated at the Never Alone Summit on Friday May 21st. The event is a one-day global live stream featuring Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Jewel, Hayden Hurst, Patrick Kennedy, and more. 
Many of them will also host their own channels on the app. Deepak Chopper noted, the mission of Never Alone is to serve a global community, delivering secure access to scientific research, the work of mental health and wellness experts, and pragmatic tools and practices that can be used by anyone, anywhere, every day. As the events of the past year have shown, we need human connection and collaboration more than ever. And we must find ways to build that connection even when we cannot physically be together. The app allows mental health and wellness experts, from medical professionals to meditation experts, to upload content into a service registry, where it is logged on the Hedera Consensus Service and given a digital fingerprint, providing a guarantee of where that content resides and making it completely tamper-proof. Users gain easy access by simply logging into the platform to view trustworthy content that they know has not been altered or falsified. The goal of the initiative is to address the roots of human stress and suffering, advance innovation based on scientific research, and democratize access to wellness resources and everyday tools for those in need. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. And now back to the episode with Ted Tanner, Chief Technology Officer of Watson Health. A lot of use cases too, though, that like you mentioned, eligibility is one, but there are tons of other use cases as well. We talked a little bit about credentialing and, and getting the provenance of someone's identity, like a provider and making sure that they are who they say they are based on their identities. Did we talk about that or was that something I... No, let's, so let's riff on that some. The world of a W3C3 verifiable credentials, back in the day, DocChain was one of the first, I think it was the first healthcare blockchain to support it. We, I believe that identity provider directories or provider identity is a subset of your identity writ large. Mm-hmm. See, what we need to usher in is contextual intelligent health record or contextual health record, depending on what you're doing with the person you're doing it with at the time of a health service can change like you. And and so that provider's identity is just a subset of his or her identity writ large. The context just changes. Right. Even the consumer's identity as a patient is just a subset of their larger identity as a human. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can have my identity as a rock star and the concerts and being able to play shows and whatever, that's one part, part yep. of my identity, but also my doctor, he could know about that. He or she could know about that, but they don't necessarily have to, to help me with my health. Mm-hmm. So. So I, I completely agree that, and that's paramount because if you think in, in the terms of healthcare quote, like use case, you walk, you walk in, you find the doctor, You say you get a clipboard, you fill out paper, you check your eligibility. If you're not eligible, you can ask the facility to do what is called a same-day self-pay cash payment, and they'll discount the service, and you don't even have to report it to the payer, which is a very interesting conundrum. Well, the whole idea of a payer is at risk of being disintermediated in the first place with healthcare. I think that was one of the original promises of all the healthcare ICOs that came out like four years ago. It was like, we're going to disintermediate payers and have these pools of money for everyone. Yeah, I I guess philosophically, they're not going anywhere. Let's run down some hard statistics just off the top of my head. So 35 to 45% of all healthcare data 
in transit and at rest is unencrypted. There were like 15 billion faxes in 2017. As a matter of fact, I had a, in full transparency, I, I had a, I'm scheduling, <laughs> the doctor gave me a piece of paper to schedule an MRI. And I called the place up and they go, can you fax it to me? I'm like, okay, I had to download some app that take a picture of it and fax it. But just even if your grandkids do them a favor, shut off your fax machine, please. This is like <laughs> bringing it back to how other countries and you know, yes. around the world are leapfrogging us. Cause I'm sure people in India probably have never, some of them in some places never even seen a fax machine. And if you go over to India, they'll have pages of published prices that you can go get a, you know, knee replacement or the yeah, straight. It's like price today. Don't delay. Go gotcha. be it. Yep. Yeah. No, that's um, the U S does it differently though. So let's see here. So I have a few, actually a bunch of like more philosophical, personal questions, but I wanted to see if you had any more input regarding technology stuff you wanted to share with the audience. G give me a vector to come in out of, what do you think of building software, building a company? No, I just meant specifically more on a technical level. Like we talked about AI and quantum computing. I know that's yeah. a passion you have. Anything else you wanted to add there? Otherwise I could oh. jump into my other questions. Yeah, I mentioned the computing frameworks thing, right? That's probably, yeah, I mentioned the computing, the framework. Yeah, I, th I think we touched on that. And oh, yeah, let me riff on this a little bit. People talk about the, uh, everybody's read the age of spiritual machines and we're going to have a singularity by 2045 or whatever. And I'm reminded when I sat down, I have two beautiful daughters and a son. And I sat down with one of my daughters when she was two years old. And she brought me two shoes and they're different and one fit and I said go get the one that fits and so she took off and she brought the one that matched and fit but she brought two a different pair okay now if you think in terms of what computationally we have to duplicate we have to duplicate voice to text we have to do semantic disambiguation, go get the ones that fit. She did, she did some type of uh, traveling salesman optimization because God knows where those shoes were. She had to infer what I actually meant with that sentence. She had to do pattern recognition and image classification of the ones that she preferred over the ones she put in front of me. And I, I say, if we can duplicate that, which we can't duplicate now, I'll go cut grass. Do you let your kids like use iPads, are they on the computer all the time? That's a good question. Yeah, no, I'm personally, I say this on my webpage, for, mo for most people that know me outside of work, I'm a Luddite. And I believe most of our problems can be solved without technology. And we are very strict about screens at the Tanner household. I would prefer them to go outside and play with sticks and dirt or play their instruments or fly a kite and experience the world. Yeah. This new generation is, it's very different from previous generations. And it's, it's interesting to see how that unravels. And what I've noticed is people that are parents that are 
aware of technology, like understanding of technology and what it can do, try to restrict their kids from using computer, watching TV or Netflix all the time or, or using their phones. But people that aren't necessarily as aware of technology, they give their kids smartphones and they let them do whatever they want mm. kind of thing. Um, they're on Instagram and all that. So I, I'm just worried about the mental state of these kids. I really do. Well, if you, if you saw the social dilemma, yeah. most of the cat, most of the cats will on that go, they said they don't, they don't let them. If you go to the Valley, most of the people in the Valley don't let, you know, that's the conflation just because you're using it doesn't mean you're doing it. Creating, creating something is very different. Now, if my daughters and both of them, my, I'm starting both of my daughters off and in coding. And um, there's an excellent for anybody out there. I will give an advertisement for this is Kano computing. They make an excellent DIY. They have a kid's GitHub. It's phenomenal. They got express script and by example, if they're writing code, I put a much larger window cap threshold on that than if they're just like messing with a game. So for instance, the first time we got the Kano computer with my then eight year old, who's now 10, they anthropomorphize things because that's, we view our, we view things in and of ourselves. And so humans have, they always anthropomorphize everything. And so she, she was learning about ellipses in class. And I was explaining her the, the real basic mathematics and we're talking. And so she, the project was to draw a face. And so draw and draw the round face, then draw the two eyes as ellipses and then draw a smiley face, which is a half ellipse and a nose. And then I said, okay, change this one number. And I showed her how to connect the number up to the key, keyboard and go back and forth. And I made the eye blink and she made the eye blink. And she looked at me and she said, daddy, I can do anything. And I said, yes, dear, you can do anything. That's, that's nice. That's, that's what it's about. That is all that's about. I love it. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with the audience. Yeah. I have another question here. What advice can you share with young technology entrepreneurs who are looking to reshape the healthcare system? We talked about this a little but any other tips? Oh yeah. So that, that's a slightly different question. And first of all, Deeply listen, get the practitioners involved as quickly as possible. If it's pharmacy, get a pharma registered pharmacist. If it's some kind of nursing thing, if it's psychology, get a, you know, if it's behavioral, get psychologist. If it's some type of clinical thing, get the surgeons and doctors involved as soon as possible. So they can shape. So would you use it? Does this solve a problem? Does this make your job better? And then don't think it's a technical problem because it's not, it's not, a, you're not going to take a, you're not going to take a recurrent or a convolutional neural net or a support vector machine and magically sprinkle AI dust on everything and out pops a cake. This is as my former co-founder at two companies used to say, she goes, it's like craw crawling through glass It's a marathon and you better get ready, but no that when you solve it, it's going to be bigger than your wildest dreams and be prepared to be thrown into that. I, 
like I said, I have a history of music and I've seen several musicians go from zero to a hundred and they weren't prepared for it. They're in their, they're in their bedroom practicing pentatonic scales. And next thing you're in front of 40,000 people, that's an issue. So you gotta be, you gotta think how much money I think the healthcare market is like $5.6 trillion by 2025. Like it's insane. The total addressable market's insane. Like just, and as I always say, and as I always say, a little bit of a lot is better than a lot of nothing. So you have to give to get, and you have to collaborate and you have, everybody worries about dilution and everything, but guess what? Most healthcare companies, you got to raise a lot of money because you got to get the regulations. It's a highly regulated space. In many cases, you're delivering something where the diagnosis people may live or die. Ethically, what type of code are you writing? You have to understand that this is a, from a technical perspective, it was 50 or 60 years old, it's well-trodden area. And so the traditional business models, you need to figure out, it can't be a rip and replace. It's got to be an augment. It's got to run side by side or, or something like that. And so you have to understand it's a marathon. You can't technize it. You have to understand it's not a rip and replace. Because if it, if it was just a rip and replace and it's a technical issue, it would have been done a long time ago. And given that, you usually, in most cases, unless you don't need to get paid at all, you got to raise a lot of money to deal with it. And also, when you go to do deals, these companies are going to be grading you against other large companies that they know will be there in the long run. It's a very different model than traditional technology companies. Does that make sense? It does. And yeah. Like, and like you mentioned, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, like they always say. So I think yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting and, and example. It, yeah. And also, and, and also the fact that you need to understand that it, and you need to be very careful that you have to understand the business model instead of making it ideological. Mm, I think it's that's great. an interesting one because a lot of startup founders are very, a lot of them are become ideological once they start to see their product become a thing and they're just be, they become very passionate about what they're doing and they lose track of the industry as a whole. Yeah. Right. Warning to the devs. If anybody's listening out there, have, as I said, have extreme passion, find your passion and dwell on it, but do not fall in love with your product because one day when you wake up and a scaling, that's going to change and it's going to be a different. Good advice. Thank you for yes. that. So a couple more questions here, actually, Yes, sir. a bunch here. So what do you believe in that most people would disagree with? The software process matters. Okay. You want me to Another, expand on that? You could, but I have a bunch of questions and I know we might be cutting close to okay. time. So, okay. Uh, Plus I got other, I also believe that technology is not some panacea like the, and listeners check me on this. It was Kernahan or Richie that said the best code is the code. The best design or the best code is the one you don't write or you don't have to write or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Meaning you figure out a way where you didn't even have to do anything and solve the problem. Everybody jump. Let's are we gonna are we gonna get Haskell or are we gonna use React or they're already jumping into the stuff, getting ready to code. And I believe we're in, in the throes of like the faster you can make them and, and oh, here's one something important that I wanted to add to the health issue. Sure. 
don't call it a minimum viable product. Call it a maximum viable product. And also don't call it a proof of concept. Call it a proof of value. Very interesting. So when yeah. you say maximum viable product, that means, what does that mean? It's, exactly? whenever, it's going to be good whenever it's delivered. It solves your problem in the safest possible situation that runs six nines, not as gonna fit. Because once again, healthcare is very different. It's like sending astronauts to Mars. You don't want that thing to fail. You want it done right. Do it fast, but do it correctly. And so that even think about the nomenclature, minimum viable product. Why can't I have a maximum viable product? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess for like the audience, like the whole idea behind minimum viable product is you wanna create something that demonstrates its value with the minimal amount of work or code just to show like what problem you're trying to solve. That's why they call it minimum viable product. But I hear what you're saying with maximum viable product. You want to try to ensure that you're delivering the best that you can given the situation and time constraints and resource constraints. And because it's health and then change from proof of concept to proof of value. We're delivering you something that actually is production ready and we're going to deliver value through it. So if you need to change it, we can go to production quicker. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you got to practice patience. It's a marathon, right? Changing the subject a little bit here. Um, yes. I actually asked this question to my last guest, Brian Bellendorf. You might know him. <laughs> awesome. Tell him I said it. Uh, so this is about, so not to get too political, but how can technology be used to address some of the major drug taboos we see in our society today. This might relate to something that something that I believe that most would disagree. I think it's really hard to change people's behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I think the quant self was a, a wet paper bag. Everybody thought, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make analytics on myself with all these devices and I'm gonna make myself better. To your point about pessimism I mean, and computing the human condition, there's a donut chain called the Krispy Kreme. And the hot light goes on, guarantee you when that hot light goes on, the call cars pull in there. I guarantee you a lot of people have diabetes pulling in there. Yeah, and they can't stop. And technology <laughs> is probably not going to change That's their right. habits or their mind. <laughs> but um, the drug addiction issue is opiates are a big problem globally even and not to get too philosophical i've seen some pretty esoteric things that were not technology related to help solve that but one project that i am excited about that we're working on we're working on a, an invasive pain management system where we deliver we analyze the body and we deliver signals that reduce pain in a remote sensing fashion Wait, can you explain that a little more? What do you mean? How does Yeah, so we have remote devices. We actually have, we do all this image AI constructs to look at the exoskeleton process and get, and we analyze the voice, we analyze all these multivariates, and then the device is implanted in the patient or consumer, and then we can fire signals to actually reduce the pain level so they don't have to take opiates. So that is a oh, direct one-to-one wow. -one correlation. And in full transparency, as many things as I have jumped off of and paddled into and everything else, I probably use most people. That's the interesting thing about startups. Something that I found over and over with startups is 
that people who do startups have a certain bend to them. Triathletes, martial artists, and concert level pianists, they have something else that they do that totally is extreme, but aligns with their ability to create great products too. It's a very interesting thing which tracks to your question about how to use technology to better society. But that's a one-to-one -one correlation is uh, we, have a, we have a pain management system we're getting ready to go pro to production with that I'm really excited about. That is interesting. What is it called? Is it like a brain implant? I'm just thinking, is this like neural? Uh, yeah. And it, it really could, yeah, it, go, it goes and it, the, you deliver the signals and I don't want to get too technical yeah. here, but it this is a one-to-one -one correlation and you can imagine it being part of a ambient house or an ambient car where it, it tracks with you and given the context once again contextual health record given the context of the situation it, del it delivers various signals for that pain threshold hmm. we'll save that one for another podcast then absolutely yeah i'll be glad to come on and talk about that one it's going to be great cool cool if it's not too personal what would you consider to be your biggest mistake whoa Okay. I'll keep this. I'll keep this in the tech realm. How about that? You can. That's, that's cool. Okay. I find the whole process of creating music and the perception of acoustics still fascinating today. Like why does a cathedral sound so beautiful? And I still find that fascinating. And a long time ago in a land far away, it was my job to create algorithms that duplicated the concept of perceiving space, i.e. Re reverberation. And it was at Digidesign. And I worked on this thing forever, about a year by myself. And I fell in love with the tech. Hmm. I thought it was right out of the box. I thought it was my magnum opus. And the hubris was through the roof. Product manager at the time, I said, okay, I'm ready for you to listen to it. He walked into my office, hit one note, middle C on the keyboard, walked out. He looked at me and he goes, and I'm paraphrasing for the audience. He goes, it sucks. Of course, he was a little more emphatic and he yelled it and threw down the headphones and walked out. I was completely crushed and not like I was like questioning everything. And if you're a technologist, this is a complicated world we live in because, you know, whether or not you're a DevOps, whether or not you're an information scientist, mathematician, formal verification, I can go down the list of the type of attributes people have. We all get in our heads and we all have the poser mentality, my imposter mentality. Mm. Yeah. That almost completely made me leave the stage. And the hardest lesson that I learned is never fall in love with technology. Don't fall in love. You can admire it. And I've been part of teams that built systems that have done machine learning that you argue with, which is a complete blast. But you don't fall in love with it. You dig? And, yeah. and that's highly personal. There, folks, something highly personal. Thanks. I appreciate that you sharing that. I can continue now. So let's see here. In your view, what would it mm -hmm. take for Bitcoin to lose its number one place in total network value? 
Well, isn't that happening right now? So <laughs> I think they're all, all the cryptos yeah. are, are losing yeah. some value in terms of USD. I don't want to get into the mathematics. I think we're, we possibly might would be what's a, a, you can look this a Wyckoff distribution for those that do computational economics. But we're not, it's outside the scope of this interview right now. I think there's a lot of companies out there right now that are doing some big, great utilitarian functions in the area of cryptocurrency and crypto assets or assets under consideration. We're going to see a utilitarian. We're going to see more utilitarian models occur, more work product, ergo different consensus models. It remains to be seen. And we, we're seeing a lot of adoption. I think like MasterCard and Visa announced they're going to oh, trans. Yeah. yeah. So the wars are going to, in the future, are going to be over the fat client protocol. It's totally, mm. it's totally. Now, what I've said it before, maybe Bitcoin is just a test, right? Yeah. Could it, could Doge, it, Dogecoin yeah. could be the, I mean, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure you should be investing on a meme, but hey, people invest in stocks sometimes that way. So whatever. Yeah. And so, the utilitarian value of dollar sign BTC, what does that actually mean nowadays? And I, now I think we're getting to the point now whether or not there's a utilitarian value of transmission in the protocol, and we're seeing that. And I think there is some hard bottom that is going to, it may or may not go to, but also it's just going to take one or two of these large institutions to start truly transacting. I think it remains to be seen, Ray. But I do think, God, what is there? There's some ungodly amount of number of cryptocurrencies out there right now. Oh, yeah. It's in the at least tens of thousands that are. Yeah. And so like trade on exchanges, probably. Yeah. And so from a utilitarian standpoint, I, I get back to the incentive model. It would be great if we could, if somebody would make a token that had some dynamic incentive model where you could barter. That's what, right? I mean, if you have a decentralized exchange, you can barter between the different tokens. Yeah, but it's, um, it's what I'm talking about is uh, more frictional. There, there's still a lot of steps. We got, we have to go a long way to make it like, like you show up at somebody's house and it says, Hey, I'll give you like, like healthcare a long time ago, mm -hmm. the doctor came out to the home. Yep. And little Amy had a sore throat. The doctor gave her some penicillin or what did they give you a sore throat for? And the mom said, look, all I have is three eggs and a loaf of bread. Is that cool? And the doc said, cool with me. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> That's about I as mean, frictional as you can get. The doctor's got to want those breakfast See? foods, but maybe. Okay. Think about it. No, think about it. The incentive model. What is your incentive model? I want to trade my time. I want to give you my time. You don't have to give me anything. What's on the other side of that two-sided market? See, right now, everybody's looking at these currencies as some, you're going to invest in your kid's college future in these things. It's not, what does it actually do? We're in the throes of that utilitarian function now. Does that make sense? So I don't know. I don't know if it's going to go down, up, or sideways, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's fair enough. This conversation could go for another hour or so. We can move on from it. It's you know what? You should idea. have it. You should have another podcast where we talk about protocols and have various industries represent protocol and asset crypto assets. That'd be a great discussion. Like have a panel. Yeah. No, I'd love to do that. Actually, Dig I'm going to note All that right. down. And make sure to invite you. Next question first. What's your favorite book that has influenced you, or do you have a favorite? book? Oh that's man, you? I am. I am a bibliomaniac. I have the disease. The first order of business is to admit you have the disease. I'm standing in my library right now. 
pretty much all they do is read books. How to read a book. How to read a book. Yeah. Okay. That's very meta, isn't it? But I've read that book three times and it talks about scientifically how you, how to read a book, literally. And the first order of business, most people read for entertainment. Then what people do is read for information acquisition. But the third order of business is reading to assimilate multiple books so you can create net new knowledge. Mm -hmm. Okay. And anytime I read how to read a book, I realize I'm doing it all wrong. And it's very, yeah, I can't recommend that book enough for everybody. And my second most cherished book is Sound Engineering by Carolyn and Don Davis, which launched my career. There you go. There you go. Have you ever met the author? No. Author? Yeah, they did. They did. They did all the calculations, which created live sound. And I, when I was in high school, I thought it was completely fascinating. My, I was thinking about writing a blog about that actually. So you should do thank it. you for, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. So what activities do you like to do to stay fit? Talk about healthcare. I think it's important to. Yeah, I work out every day. I, I have a saying, hashtag iron never lies. I try to lift weights every day, do some type of aerobic activity every day. My complete hands down two passions. I, I snowboard. I do all the stuff like that, but surfing and I have fallen in love with free diving. Yeah. You know what that is? Jumping from a high cliff into the no, water no i'm i'm actually scared of heights the uh free diving is where it's, it's called hashtag one breath and you take one breath and you dive down to as far as you go and you hold your breath and swim around and so far i'm i have about a four minute breath hold but the people that i know they can do six and a half minute breath holds and go down to 200 feet on one breath it's astounding 200 it's, feet that, yeah. that pressure must be actually longer than that yeah they're from a physiological standpoint they're finding that your lungs contract your heart contracts everything your blood gets heavy amounts of co2 in it like all these physiological changes but the crazy thing about it ray after you hit 45 feet you're on you're under two atmospheres of pressure and it starts dragging you down in the water you can put your hands down by your side and you're like on a rocket going down the water it's it's an amazing feeling what's your backup plan it's kind of i kind of map it to launching code like when you go to production a lot of times you only got one shot at shipping code and everybody's got a disaster recovery plan. The rule is one down, one up, and it's all about safety. Some physiological aspects, even if you breathe all the way out, you still got, got about 25 seconds of oxygen left in your body, but it's, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's, it's awesome though. And most people do, when they do it, they get hooked on it. And yeah, I know my brother, uh, he was doing some holding his breath exercises. I think it was like Costa Rica did three minutes. It was like a training course thing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So that's interesting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that too. Yeah, man. Um, the next question actually touched upon earlier about the singularity. And I would just want to know your thoughts on whether or not what you think will happen in 2045 when the supposed singularity is supposed to occur. We got about another 20 years. 
I keep, I keep forgetting what year we're in. When 2021? I'm not really good with calendars in time or email. Like um, 24 years. Yeah, I don't see cars driving around by themselves yet. In 24 years? Oh, you mean like no? Right now, and I don't see um, robots doing an inference and semantic disambiguation like my two two year old daughter. So I, I realize I'm taking the luddite view right now, but even if from a from a conceptual standpoint, even if we reach the singularity, a la Kurzweil's age of spiritual machines, will we even know we're in the age of spiritual machines? That's a good point. And and if you like Bostrom's super intelligence book, I, I don't believe that things are gonna become unhinged in the I anybody yeah artificial intelligence and here's the picture of the term of the term of the terminator you know it's like now people use it for nefarious means of course we got bots and malware all over the place but singular i don't even know what the singularity is we all sing hands and kumbaya and we smile i don't know what it is yeah people define it differently but okay back to consensus all right we get we back to human consensus condition first. we gotta find consensus <laughs> Fair enough. We can move on from that one. Too. Yeah. This is like my last question about philosophical and then we can wrap it up. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? I don't think I can answer that one. Anyway, well, it would be interesting because the cerebral cortex does some interesting things with high risk sports. Yeah, you'd be diving and diving. Yeah, so you, you got to think about, so definitely for me, I would have to sit down and figure out, is it in the amenglata, the cerebral cortex, what part of the brain would I want to overclock? Because I am, I believe in of healthy mind and healthy body and being the best at all costs. And whatever works for you is great. So would we, you're talking to somebody who has, you know, titanium shoulders and pins and plates and everything. So if you think in terms of Dr. Norbert Viner, who he, he wrote cybernetics and the human use of humans in the forties, and he coined the term cybernetics. And if you think in terms of extending the human via some physicality technology and he was a very interesting cat because he was a complete pacifist yet he worked on some of the most terror ridden machines for the war amazing individual look him up and so where would i put the brain implant what part of the brain would i implant it in is what i say like what what part would i want to overclock why so somewhere um, like in the brain though that's the, yeah, and I, I would rather, as much as I listen to things, I think I would rather be blind than deaf. But you know, that's where we get into, I think a book came out recently, Editing the Human or something like that. And it was about all the CRISPR technology. And now they're already solving, they're solving deafness and they're working already to solve blindness in situ. So they're actually injecting it in the person's body, in, in the person's body. I would, and I actually wrote a blog about this. Like I'm, I am totally about augmenting the human to be performant, but it would be definitely the correct part of the brain for me. So just a follow-up question there, philosophical is just yes. what happens to people that might not be able to afford it. So there's this equality, inequality yeah. question when you talk about 
performant supplements or devices or anything. Maybe it's a blockchain related solution that has game theory to incentivize all parties to share and enable everyone to be superhuman. I don't know. Yeah. You get into the whole aspect of collective consciousness and what's happening with our perception and stuff like that. I don't know. There's people that, that have yachts and I don't. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, but I can guarantee you probably the people that can afford it are going to have it first. I hate to be a pessimist about it, but this is how it works in a lot of cases. Yeah. No, not so much different than today. Like people with resources and money can afford their children to go to the best schools and whatever. Yeah. Is Um, it correct? Philosophically? No, but do I think that's going to change with tech? Not necessarily because the issue, like you brought up an issue, people who work in tech guard their kids from screen time. People who don't work in tech, let their kids have screen time. That's a behavioral issue. Is that a monetary issue? No, they both have the device. That has nothing to do, as I always say, it costs nothing to do nothing. Ted, this has been awesome. Very philosophical. I like that though. So thank you for sharing your thoughts here. And just want to give you a chance if you have any other key takeaways for the audience. Yeah. Once again, go build, go create, go find your passion, get an idea, figure it out, go build it and make it happen. Ship code, execution is everything and change the world. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. And it's been a long time coming and I hope I can come back and I hope everybody is safe and well and take care. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.